Ooh, Ooh the sounds of sweet vibration. Mm, so sweet they are. I have to say, this is one of my favorite, favorite sex toy companies because one, you have a sweet ass time, but also, I mean, they have so many different options for you. And look how pretty and fun they are. They're bright colors. They do all kinds of exciting things. There's one that goes around your clit in like surround sound. There's one that (laughs) simulates um, conolingus. It doesn't vibrate. It kind of blows air. I love these. Also, all of them are waterproof. All of them are rechargeable. They come with a discreet travel case, USB charging cable. I mean, this really is absolutely amazing. Plus, there's a lifetime warranty. So if you're looking to have a sweet time with sweet vibrations. For a long time. For a very long time. Mm-hmm. You can check them out on Instagram at Sweet Vibrations and online. Visit SweetVibes.toys. And we have a little promo code for you. We do. It's wild love. And you get 15% off at checkout. That adds up. Have some fun. Woo. Hey, you guys, we are not taking care of black women in this country. And Latham Thomas came on to talk to us about it. She talked to us about the black maternal health crisis. She talked to us about self-care. She talked to us about feeling entitled to pleasure and your orgasm. You're going to love meeting her. And she's also just such a sweet and vibrant human being. I really, really enjoyed this podcast because I learned so much about healthcare and doulas and what that even means and What's how that a works. Doula? If you don't know, get ready to find out. Yep. Enjoy, guys. Rolling. Great. We're on. We're on. Wow, I didn't mean to Sound start speed. like that, but here Sex. we are. So we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna you're gonna send us your bio and yeah. we'll yeah, after yeah. this we'll for the intro yeah, we'll, we'll lay do that all the down. Things. Yeah. But um, do you want me to start? Go ahead, because you have, you met her. I'm so excited that Latham Thomas is here right now, sitting right here, looking as beautiful and knowledgeable as ever. Oh my God, you're so funny. I mean, she's got the hat on, she's got these cute shoes, she's crushing the game. (laughs) She's always crushing it. I love it. it. And she's crushing it. We talked about this before. Before you got here, we were talking about you. What? Yeah. And I was saying that one of the reasons you're such a great guest to have on is you are sort of a shining example of doing many things at once Mm. and bringing many things (laughs) together. You're a doula, you're a pleasure educator, Mm. and you're on the front lines of addressing the black maternal health crisis in the United States. You can play with the fashion crowd, you can play with the Hollywood crowd, you have incredible sort of academic and scientific knowledge about your field. So we just feel like we couldn't ask for a better guest. Thanks for being here. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. And what a delight to sit betwixt the two of you. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yes. Wait, so I do want to dive into the the doula work because yeah. I wasn't very familiar with what that term was until sure. I started looking it up and I was looking at your website and your Instagram and it seems so there has to be an extremely powerful experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you think about one of the most um powerful and vulnerable times in your life is one that we're crossing a threshold where we become something greater than we were before. And 
at any life transition that, I mean, this happens for us throughout our lives, but birth is such a powerful one, right? And it's such a powerful metaphor that we see show up in other areas of our lives. But um, the physical aspect of, you know, carrying the term life and then releasing that into the world and all that comes with it is um, for women, for people, for everyone that's involved in the process is really transformative. But for me as a doula and a practitioner who supports women at this threshold of change in their lives, it's really about holding space for them. It's really not about me. Um, but I am really critical to the fold in making sure that mothers feel safe, they feel advocated for, that they can advocate for themselves, that they have tools to navigate the process and they're properly educated about their bodies. And that's why I'm so excited to be here because I feel like, you know, culturally, we are not having this dialogue about our bodies and thinking about, you know, how, what, what types of, what's the relationship that we, our most primary relationship is with our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And we're not having a great relationship with our bodies as women. We're fighting for all the things, but we don't even know the body parts that we're fighting for. Oh, right? see, this is, and this is what brought us together, yes. among other things. <laughs> our friend Tiffany Dufu, um, who wrote a book called Drop the Ball, and who She's amazing. everybody needs to know about, is the person who introduced us. That's right. But Latham, I call her my spirit guide to female pleasure. Because when I'm I- I'm so undeserving of oh, that. No, you are not. When I was writing my book on True, I interviewed Latham and um, she was saying to me, as if I already knew, she said, you know, we go into doctor's offices and we see these maps of the female reproductive system, the ovaries, the vagina. We, we, and she said, and you know, we know all that, many of us already, but where are the maps of the female pleasure system? And I said, yeah. And then she said, like, <laughs> mic drop. Mic drop. Well, because then the mic drop was when she said, where are the maps of the female erectile network? And I was like, hold up, what? <laughs> what is that? And she said, oh, girl. That's exactly what you said to me. Yes. I Googled it and my mind was blown because I did not know about the internal clitoris and the female erectile network until Latham Thomas told me. And I'm guessing you have changed many women's lives in the same way, but that was such a moment. Oh, I'm sure a, I yeah. didn't know anything about it either until you came on the podcast, on Aubrey's podcast, with <laughs> the the 3D um, model. model. The print, like a printed one, the right? 3D yes. printed yes. model. And it's I like was a like, oh my God, wow. Look how big clap. my uh, clitoris is. <laughs> yeah. This is amazing. Giant clit. Right? Right? Giant clit. We didn't know. How could I, I not be more excited about this? No. Yeah. How right? did you not know? Yeah, how could we not know? How could we not know that? Tell, Explain to us how it is that there's so much about female pleasure and even the most basic fact about our body part that we don't know. Well, that's by design. I don't <laughs> think that there's, if women felt, if women had connection to their bodies and if they felt empowered through their bodies, um, we wouldn't be taking a lot of the things that are happening around us. We wouldn't settle for a lot of things that are happening around us. And I also think that um, this is a real tool of patriarchy to to keep us disconnected with our power source, which is our pelvic bowl, you know? And having, and whether you were born with a uterus or not, this is a power center for all of us. And, um, and I think it's by design that we don't understand our bodies, right? And this, I mean, this touches everything. When we think mm -hmm. about also, um, you know, the, the, um, our menstrual health and our menstrual cycles, like most women don't even know when they're gonna bleed, 
or they don't know when they're ovulating. They don't know if they ovulate. Um, we have a pill for everything, right? To modulate every single system and every single symptom and every single function of the body. There's a pill, right, that yeah, we could mm -hmm. take so we don't have to feel it. And right. so we're so disconnected from our bodies in so many ways. And and um, everything I think in our culture turns us away from our bodies. Look at the commercials mm -hmm. on TV. Look at the magazines we have. Look at what we what we um, allow ourselves to take in in terms of media. It's all toxic, right? When we think about how good do you feel when you leave the nail salon after like reading those magazines? Yeah. Like you don't feel good, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a reason I think why we why we're silencing aspects of of ourselves through whether it's symptoms, whether it's emotions, um, and having that knowledge base of what's happening through your body would empower you to make better choices that are aligned with optimal health, um, that are aligned with uh, trust of the intuition, right? And connecting the body and the mind together because that's really the issue is that we act like these are different systems, but they're so deeply entwined. You know, looking at studying male systems, right, to mm -hmm. understand also female pathologies, which you can't, which we know doesn't work. Right. So a lot of like our science happens through men first because men are what's considered normal, what's considered, you know, um, uh, women, the baseline, yeah, the right? baseline like, is men, right? And yeah. then outside of that is women, right? right? And then it gets even worse when we look at like, you know, margins, people who, you know, fit into smaller categories, but first is men. So then we study men and their illnesses and their pathologies. And then we layer anything that happens through men, we just layer it on women without even studying women. And this is now recent years, we are doing these things to like, look at female anatomy, but also look at like pathologies and figure out how to actually cure because you know what for anything that happens in the male reproductive system you know whether it's like uh, prostate cancer you know you can go in for in you know get like nip and tuck in a day and like you could go home you're shooting blanks but at least you could still have sex mm -hmm. um but your life doesn't change dramatically if like a woman has cervical cancer or ovarian cancer like we're talking about like major life shifts and possibly like not, sur you know, surviving, right. right? Something like that. And so we know that there's a priority to make sure that, you know, men uh, survive. And right. they, so like our study, I mean, like we have breast cancer, like it's a huge, you know, industry to like, look at like, you know, um, what is it? The Susan B. Komen and all these things and the breast right. cancer walks and all that stuff. We, you don't have that for prostate cancer because you can survive it, right? Yeah. So I think it's like there's a real push. The bias is so baked it's in. It's so and, blatant. And it's so interesting what you say that the bias got baked in, among other ways, because of the the relationship between medicine and religion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's for sure. pretty Early on, heavy. and I think it just keeps weaving and weaving and weaving. And you're trying to do a lot about it. I mean, you're like... Um, a pleasure renegade, you're a birth renegade, and you're looking at how, you know the bias that black women face when they're trying to be sexual, but also just when they're trying to have a baby in the just hospital. Just trying to survive childbirth. Can you drop <laughs> some of those facts yeah. on us about what happens when black women are sexual that is so different yeah. for, from other women? And also about the health crisis that black women are facing when they're having babies. Yeah, sure. So um, if we look at, uh, there's a really amazing book that people can read if they want to learn more about sort of the the legacy of um, like how uh, black bodies are looked or perceived, I should say. There's a book by um, 
uh, Deirdre Cooper Owens, and it's called um, uh, Medical Bondage. And it's a really great book. Mm. Ooh, and it looks title. at- It is good. I'm like, yeah. and interested. It's a great book. <laughs> you have my attention. All research. And it looks, and th- all this information is out there. But what she does in such a really profound way is that she gathers a lot of the sort of medical um, journal research from the 1700s in the South that starts to document differences, quote unquote, between Mm. um, black women and white women. And so when they had slave hospitals, they actually studied um, black slave pathologies so that they could cure the illnesses of white women. And so what would happen is there were also like uh, Irish indentured servants. So they were also part of this experimentation. And so um, what happened though, was that there was already a racial um, kind of through line and a, and a story and a mapping of what will become a larger system, you know, that would govern our, our larger culture and, you know, um, in terms of racism and, and how it plays out, like that was being mapped. But at the same time, they were looking at not science, medicine was completely different from science and that science is seeking to find um, truth, but in medicine, they're seeking to find difference. And so what medicine was doing was so deeply tied into race because it was about finding the difference between a black female pelvis and a white female pelvis, which science will say there's no difference, but medicine said there was. Wow, what were they saying was the difference in terms of medicine? So it was all, if you read the things, it's like, it's, it's shocking to read because it talked, there's a lot um, that would be um, connected to sexuality. So, right. oh, this woman has a diseased pelvis because she was, you know, very sexually active, or um, there would be uh, descriptions of body parts being enlarged, like an enlarged buttocks or, you know, labia, or whatever it was, they would talk about um, in terms of like, like it, it would be exaggerated, right? And, right. And also looked at like the, that these people that they were doing experimentation on, they also weren't using anesthesia. Oh my God. And yeah. they also had a belief that like the women were more um, capable of experiencing pain and that they actually didn't feel pain. Right. And they so, were like less human. Like they, they were subhuman. They didn't need yeah. anesthesia. They didn't need anesthesia. They were subhuman. Um, and so there was this I, this belief. Even there was even one passage where um, you know uh, there's there was an instance where I guess a slave mistress um, like hit one of her um, bond women upside the head and said, and she knocked her out. And she's like, oh, I didn't even realize I could knock her out because I thought that her hair would like absorb the shock, like things like this. They just didn't realize like that these are also people too. Right. And so I just don't even understand how they draw those conclusions. It's like it's so exaggerated, like you said, that it's almost like a fantasy world of some sort of bullshit, you know, total fantasy, but also total like creating like the rudiments of what become like a system and how you can look at people and see them as different and treat them differently. And so in the only value was because these were people who were then contributing to an economic model, which depended upon them. Right. So it depends upon these women giving birth to babies to continue slavery, chattel slavery. Yeah, so if they, di- if they weren't healthy, then they couldn't do that. Mm. And so the investment was in their health 
only so that they could produce. To serve this end, right. to benefit other people. Yeah, so their sexuality belonged, basically. Right? There, and then we had to think about what their sexuality was because then there was also slave masters that would mate with them against their will, and they were also part of these scientific experiments. And so it was really crazy. So that's like a backdrop, right? And then we fast forward to when you know slavery ends, and now you have women who still have to give birth to babies, and when mostly there would be um, granny midwives who would attend to births, now that there's insurance, and they will take slave insurance, um, or there's uh, slave women, or sorry, freed women would be insured, you could go to now an obstetrician to see him, and he would be totally happy to make you a client because those that population was now attractive because you could get insurance to pay for their care. So then that kind of disrupted a movement that was really female focus. And you can even find um, medical journals that talk about um, and um, op-eds back then that talked about the disruption of this um, very female-centric work, which was midwifery and men coming into it. And a lot of people had a lot of opinions about men disrupting the this very female-centric work, which was always done by women for since the beginning of time. And a lot of us, I mean, it's been so thoroughly blotted out that a lot of us just don't even know that there is this kind of secret history totally. that it was, you know, women and women of color helping women have babies yeah. for decades and decades and decades. And that what we're doing now is pretty new, medicalized birth. Yes. And that it has this, as you said, all this baggage of bias. So much baked trauma in. baked in, so much bias baked in. And the thing that is so bad about it, because that's how it started, right? That's the legacy that it's still steeping and nobody said, hey, we should examine the system mm -hmm. from a long time ago because we're still kind of operating within these same paradigms as well as some of these same patterns of thought. If you, if a woman today in 2018, I mean, we have stories like Serena Williams, which many of us have heard of, who, I mean, all of the money, all of the influence, all the notoriety, how could she have the same chances? How can her, how can she have no protection economically? How can she have no protection in visibility and celebrity? Like those things should protect that, us. That she almost died. That she mm -hmm. almost died. In childbirth. In childbirth, right? And because she felt she was neglected and she wasn't listened to. And these are things that common complaints that women will say, women of color will say they experience. And so what we know is that there's flaws in the system and that there's also some things that we need to address there's some flaws in the system and things we need to address to to make sure that <laughs> Siri's like, that? hello? What is that? <laughs> is that the phone? Why is it talking? Um, it's, is this your screen? Yes. But it's <laughs> You're creeping over to it like it's like, a, like it's going to like, <laughs> it should it not even be on. That is so weird. What this is, I swear age. to God, these phones are like, you said always you put it on, on, on airplane, airplane mode. mode. Too. You did. But Whoa. this is insane. She's like, let me What talk did Siri say? I want to be it part just of this. Said, she just, what did she say? She, said, she said, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that now. Siri, we need help with that though. That's this like, whole conversation. She's like, institutionalized this is why racism. I, don't like I these can't phones. help you with that. Because I swear that even when they're not on, they're listening. They're on us. They're listening to everything. All the time. This Whoa. is so crazy. I know. See, I, this is like driving home my point about like conspiracies and I just like can't right now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 
Tell us when you're ready for us again. I think that's, I think we can leave that in. I think leave it in there. It's interesting. <laughs> it is. So yeah. what is Siri listening in? She's like, oh, Siri, you're, you're supposed about to be the government sleeping. And medicine. Yeah. Um, um, I'm going to interject myself. You guys need to stop talking about that. <laughs> for you get on Siri. a list. <laughs> um, so tell us some of the statistics. The Serena Williams story was incredible um, to yeah. all of us. It like knocked our socks off that this woman who has, um, so much power in her own right. She's so accomplished. She has so much celebrity. Mm-hmm. You would think that she would have clout in the hospital system and that people would listen to her. Mm-hmm. But she tried to warn her doctors something's not right. Um, I have the pre-existing condition, right? And and yet. And yet she had to fight to get a scan because she had developed some, um, I think, uh, I think it was like on her lungs, she was developing some clots. Um, They, I think it's what it was. They did a CT scan and they saw that actually, cause she was like, I was having trouble breathing and I was coughing a lot. And it's like, she knew better and she had to get up out of the bed and ask. And then she had to go into operation again because she was coughing so much that she actually um, broke the stitch area so the sutures i think came undone so she had to go back into the or so she had a horrible recovery and i think she has some rage around that because there was no support there was no sort of you know a real public address or even private probably where she was able to kind of come to terms with what occurred you know that should not have under any circumstances right and so i think that story is is a one thankfully where she ended um she ended up surviving and being able to tell her story, but so many don't end like that. And when we talk about the numbers, it's important to think about the fact that these are also people who live very full lives and who are the crux of their communities, right? Because we know women serve as like the foundation of communities. And so when a mother dies, a a neighborhood, a community is destabilized when that happens, right? And so when we're talking about the statistics in the United States, um, black women are three to four times more likely to die during childbirth or due to childbirth related causes than white women. Three to four times more likely to die during In New York, that number jumps to 12 times. What? Yeah, 12 times in New York. Also, there's other places, you know, in the country where where that happens as well, where where there's a a dramatic increase, right? Why is that? And it's because in New York City, um, white women are doing so well, so like the gap widens, um, and also because the the care here, like for people who can go in, two people, everything could be the same except for just their skin is different, um, and they go in and they have completely different experiences. And so, and and when I say this, I'm not talking about like race is the issue; it's racism. Really, right. it's like bias. And there's all kinds of things that we see too. We see it where it's um, like age, right? So if I come in and I'm 16, I'm not treated well. But if I come in and I'm like 40 something, I'm also not treated well, right? So we see on both sides, mm-hmm. age bias. We see obviously economic and economic can usually be conflated with race sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Um, we see uh, gender, we see bias as it relates to uh, marital status. Um, how you're coupled, what that configuration looks like. Um, there's so many things. And then 
on top of that race, right? right? So I think that, you know, it becomes really challenging when you enter settings where you're really vulnerable and, and you don't have support. That's why I really advocate for doula support and for people to be properly educated before they move into the medical system so that, and like many places, everything's fine, right? But there are places that you go and you're not fine. And so I just want for the people that we work with and the doulas that we work with to be well trained. Train. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. so that they when they go in these settings, they really know how to to navigate and also how to properly prepare the families that they're working with. And I do believe that if we think about it from the standpoint that um you know, black women are in crisis. So if we solve for them, everybody's going to do better, right? Because we know that also what folds in is you know, white women who may be less educated also fall into this area. And so we want to make sure that everybody who falls into this area, who may not be reported or who are underreported, also get better care. So if we think about it from this standpoint, like the ones, you know, like where the blood is, let's go like, you know, suture and clean up, right? Like we need to go where there's the bleeding and not like focus on, oh, I need to put a little Band-Aid on your paper cut. Like Mm -hmm. we need to go to the, you know, the part of the body that's bleeding and like solve for that. So if we think about doing that first, I think it looks like a combination of policy, um, addressing policy gaps. I think it also looks like you know, um, bringing more doulas into the fold, doulas of color who look like some of the people that really need the support so they feel mm-hmm. safe when they go into these spaces. Right, you might feel like even if you had a white midwife, if you're a woman of color, you might not feel that, and you might feel for very good reason that you couldn't trust, that or you Or even if you feel like you can, be listened there to. could be somebody, there could just be differences where she might not even be thinking about or having mm-hmm. been aware of these issues to be able to address it too. Because I had an amazing midwife. She was white. She was awesome. I've done some births with her and I would not have chosen anyone else. Like she was amazing. I just like, she just, it was my dream. And I met all the midwives That's in the amazing. practice. <laughs> and I was like, I really hope we get her. Because it was like, you you interviewed everyone and each appointment you got to see somebody. Right. And, but you never knew who was gonna be on call. Cause it was just right. like how they worked as a practice. It was on 14th street. It was called Elizabeth Seaton. It was the only freestanding birth center in New York City since shut down. It was awesome. So I would never have changed, you know, the fact that I had her because I, I really prayed that my son would come when she was on duty, and <laughs> she did. And my son was born then. But I do feel like, again, if there would have been some issue where um, I needed a special type of attention, I felt like she would have been prepared for that. And so. It's like, it's just making sure that these people who are part of our birth team are really equipped. And is this done in a hospital or at home or a birthing center, just anywhere? Yes, wherever, you know, like if if you decided, hey, I want to have a home birth, then we want to like make sure that we're best preparing you for that experience. Um, again, in a home birth setting, there's less of these factors, right? Because you're, you're usually working with someone that you've chosen that also is aligned with a similar sort of mindset, like of slow birth, like everything taking time, really more, um, you know, centered around the experience of uh, of safety, of comfort, and centered around you, right? Like not around you know, the hospital goals or maybe like our, the fact that like we have to push a whole bunch of people through here today, Mm -hmm. Um, right? So it's more focused on, you know, the time that it takes for your baby to come, right? And that's really critical to have, to feel like you have time. And right? somebody there's like, I'm relax. here for however long this takes. This is Don't what worry, it is. I got you. Like, that's right, yeah. that's right. 
and instead of somebody saying, which literally, you know, used to happen and still does sometimes happen that a doctor's in a hurry. So a woman ends up having a C-section. Sometimes this happens. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, nobody thinks about the long-term effects of cutting through tissue like that and then developing scar tissue. Nobody thinks about the long-term effects of even, you know, even for a vaginal birth, sometimes um, doctors will do cuts uh, in the, um, the um, erectile tissue right underneath the perineum, right? They'll cut into the perineal tissue um, within a procedure called an episiotomy, exactly. And that tissue, as we've talked about, is super delicate. And I know people who, you know, 16 years after they've had a kid, they're like, it's still uncomfortable for me to have sex because of a minor cut into some very, you know, sensitive tissue. And let's talk about how often a doctor, it would not be unusual for a doctor to perform an episiotomy without asking the woman yeah, sometimes. or asking the woman yes. oh man or even without telling her and then to say afterwards i gave you this kills me i gave you what is that stitch the called the husband stitch i gave you the husband stitch cuz it's supposed to be like the husband tighter stitch. or something mm -hmm. he stitched you up it's usually i mean it might be a female obgyn but that he stitched you up tightly for your husband right and it's called the husband stitch. And I we, mean, maybe it's too tight, and it, that's why you're having pain during intercourse. And, like how and all these upsetting all these be? interventions with no warning and no asking right. of permission. And so you, here's a big thing. A spectrum. Yeah. So here's the piece too that's really important when we talk about things happening that we didn't know about, and a lot of women I'll talk to they'll say oh, well, this happened, or I wasn't, you know, I'm not really sure. There's always these stories where people aren't really clear when you start asking them questions. And one of the things that's really critically important is having a conversation as it relates to birth around consent, right? So I think we have these conversations mm. so well right now. Mm -hmm. We're having a public discourse. We're having like a global conversation about what it looks like about when boundaries are transgressed sexually, yeah. right? Because of Me Too and this incredible work that Tarana Burke has given us and a framework, I think, to have this conversation. Tarana Burke, who gave us the hashtag Me Too yes. and started. And started the movement. Um, I think that we're not having it in birth though. We're not having this conversation here. Where a lot mean, of women are re-traumatized during birth. A lot of women experience um, what's called birth rape sometimes. Um, what a does lot that of women mean where, exactly. Where someone, so for instance, like there are um, some things that are like normal protocol, like cervical exams, mm -hmm. where um, a doctor would be checking to see like how dilated you might be and what station your baby may be at. And so um in with, what happens with that is when you're not aroused, someone is placing their hand inside of your vagina and up against your cervix, which doesn't feel good if you're not aroused, right? And somebody's cold hand, <laughs> you know what I mean? That you <laughs> yeah. don't even, and they're like, it's just like, you're supposed to just relax. And it's like, relax. Like, thanks for the words, relax. Like, I'm not relaxed. Mm -hmm. like, this is not, doesn't feel good. To I'm add even, insult to violation. Right. You just tell me to relax. <laughs> tell me to relax, right? And so then you do this, and this is something that happens frequently towards the end of the pregnancy. For people who've had um, trauma, like this type of touch can really like uh, trigger them, mm -hmm. right? Um, there can also be uh, really rough or disturbing types of touch um, during the, the birth process. Um, and I think that for some people who've been, who've had really traumatic experiences sexually, um, they might find themselves feeling similar feelings or being triggered by some of these things. And so it's like reliving 
or revisiting some of those emotions again. So um, there is a real need to have a discussion about what consent looks like and understanding that um, just because I, you know, splay my legs open doesn't mean that I'm consenting or just because I cooperate doesn't mean I'm consenting. In just because hospital setting. In a hospital setting or in any setting. Yeah, in any right? setting. Like I mean, this is for every aspect of our lives. Like if I didn't, if I just cooperate doesn't mean that I'm consenting. It could mean that I feel like I'm coerced to do something, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times when we're even having these discussions in other spaces, it's like, well, you did this. It's like, but did I feel like I... I felt like I had to, or maybe I didn't feel safe if I didn't do this thing. Or and I didn't know my I options. I didn't know my options. Just, and yeah. so many women in hospitals want to be good patients, right? right because yeah. we're taught to be good girls. Yeah, and especially if you're a woman of color in a hospital setting where there are these powerful, usually white male doctors attending to you often, I can imagine the pressure to go along and can seem to be consenting to things that you feel you're being pressured into doing. And not even tremendous. knowing sometimes what you're being asked to do, yeah. right? Like right. sometimes it's just like, okay, I don't understand what you've said, but you've said it with such confidence, but also you've said it in a way that you feel annoyed by me. I'm not gonna like, I'm just gonna leave it, I'm right? I'm gonna be a good girl. I'm just gonna be good and just, you know, okay, that's what you, you what you say goes. And I think that this culture of like, you know, this power over, power under, like I'm supposed to like bow to you. I'm paying you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, do yeah. you, like, let's not get it twisted. Like, let's not get it twisted. I'm here to like pay You're your bills. You're working for me now. You're working for me. Yeah, yeah. People have said that. You work for me. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times during a birth, like um, I've read that it's, we developed women sitting in that position with their legs in stirrups for the convenience of doctors, not for the ease of childbirth. Right. So we've literally it's like not for the ease of childbirth. childbirth around so that it's what's easiest for the doctor versus what's in the best interest of the baby and the mother. Hello, let me tell you something. Your <laughs> pelvis is 28% more open when you squat. That is definitely... Um, a better position to be in if you are trying to push a human out of your body. And yet we so, want women passively lying there in stirrups. Lying stirrup. and pushing uphill. Relax. Yeah, yeah, I'm real relaxed here. Right? It's like, what are we doing? What are yeah. we doing? So God. it's just the whole thing. If we think about that, like if there was freedom and movement, again, when you go in, there's ju there's just so many things that contribute to um, the difficulty and the, I would say this, this overall feeling that many women carry about the process. It's just not like all of our modern obstetrical practices are not conducive to what mother nature designed for us, which is ease. You know, it's not always so easy and orgasmic. There are women who have orgasmic births, but I it's really, not I, always I with I'm total ease, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we can, but there's energies that we can work with and there's movement and there's sound and there's, you know, there's all these things that we can work with that we don't get to, you know? And so- it's medicalized out of the experience. Yes. And then I think also because women don't feel, again, if you don't feel connected to your, if you don't have a relationship with your body to begin with, is like, how are you going to tap into that or feel safe enough to tap into that when it's time? Right. Like and we then, don't explore yeah. that. That's right? like the bigger conversation is, right? It's like we have to be tapped in with who we are and how our body works yes. and the feelings. And even just to go back to, I was put on birth control when I was like 15. Right. 
and I was on it for was that for um, hormonal birth control? Was it for the purposes of like your period? I got on it because I had acne and I was I was sexually active. Got it. So and I grew up with um, a single father, so I was like, yeah, I need a. I got acne. I for sure need to go get birth control. You know, <laughs> so went got on birth control when I was 15 and then got off of it when I was 27 mm -hmm. or so. Yeah. And I realized, wow, I never allowed my body to do what it was meant to do. I never had that connection with yeah. it. Um, and then once I got off of it, I've been off of it now for a few years, but I realized that I, I started to become in touch with my body. Yeah. Like I knew when my breasts were starting to hurt and what that means. And my, even my libido and my sexual drive, like, skyrocketed just from getting off of that and i honestly felt more inspired more determined like i honestly felt like birth control gave me like put a cap totally. on mm. what i was capable of doing mm. and nobody talks about that the doctor yes. didn't tell me this one time even throughout my 12 years that i was on it yeah it's just like here you go yeah, keep taking it you're to ovulate yeah, yeah they, you and to they were basically just like just don't reproduce that's like that's right. the thing don't here reproduce. we don't care about, and look birth control is a huge privilege we're so lucky thank god right absolutely but how about you can, how about educating but you can, women you, about it and yes girls, you right? can control whether or not you get pregnant without the use of hormonal birth control. That's what I'm doing now. This is really critical. And it's not the rhythm method because a rhythm method is based on like every woman's period being the same. And, and all of our periods not. have variation. Mm -hmm. Not everybody <laughs> ovulates on day 14, right? We know there's variation. And so we have to learn what's right for, I have to learn what's right for Latham. You have to learn what's right for Whitney. You have to learn what's right for Wednesday. And what's really important that doesn't happen in this culture is that when you start menarche right when you start your menses as a young woman there's going to be variation for like the first few years right and so we have to figure out a rhythm but if we chart and if we start checking our mucus which means touching the stuff that comes into your panties touching right. what's coming out of your body yeah like getting in contact it. with your fluids and your mucosa and understanding what's coming out of you is all information right so i know Afterwards, I know exactly when I ovulated, right? Because I can tell based on the mucus and there's different types of mucus. But I also know when I'm moving, you know, out of the luteal phase and I'm going to start, and I know exactly when my period should come. And not based off of like, oh, just counting, but I know based on my my temperature, I know also based on, you know, the the fluid, right? You're in and touch we can, with all that. But we, but everybody has access to this. Right. It's free. And, and that's amazing. That it's we need free. to know it's free. And so for us to only come in contact with our bodies through our partners or, you know, for us to not feel like we can touch parts of our bodies or connect with the things that come out of our or bodies. Or that it's gross. Or that it's right? nasty. Oh, that's so Because that's gross. the message, right? It's right, like, oh, you message. need like perfumes and like all these washes and all these things. No, you don't. No, you don't. People are yeah. selling a freaking <laughs> pipe dream with this stuff. It's like, you need to put this inside and then rub this and then like say a prayer. And it's I mean, like, no. Right. Also, by the way, stuff. a lot of the perfumes and stuff you're using are actually a detriment to your, your vagina. Oh, that's right. So and your overall health so and everything. So you're like, yeah. 
it's this full cycle. And you cycle. smell like Victoria's Secret. Nobody wants to smell you smelling like Victoria's Secret. It's like, why do you smell like <laughs> strawberry like flair? Like, why do you smell like, like that? You want, your body odor is beautiful. It's a part of you. It's pheromones. Like, Aubrey it's loves the, my, my armpits and like even my vagina and my butt and all of it, you know? And it's like, just celebrate that. That we're, this is That's what we're on this planet to do. It's, it, yeah, it's a part of you. Your it's hair, special. by the way, too, which people don't understand. Like, everyone wants to look prepubescent, but like, that your is hair. Weird, the Lolita wax around Come here. on, right? Yeah, your hair, in New York. Your hair, it also like traps in scent, right? Which attracts your partner. Back yeah. in the day, we didn't have underwear. We were walking around like full bush. And so it was like, you know, your partners would smell, right? They were mm -hmm. like, she's in heat, right? right? And we're ready, right? So it's like, you have the hair for that reason too. And then you have, and then you mentioned the armpit hair, which is so amazing because also in labor, one of the things that I um, try to get couples to do if there's a partner present, is um, to smell, like to kind of fall into the crook of, you know, their their um, neck and then smell under the armpits because that scent is actually really, um, it triggers safety because you're mm. like, oh, I'm with the person I feel safe with. And so in early labor, if you think about like, um, slow dancing, like I'll get them to slow dance together. And when you slow dance, where do you end up? You end up kind of here or like near the armpit chest area. Mm -hmm. And then you can smell them and it reminds you like you're safe and which relaxes your nervous system. And it kind of can keep this flow of hormones, this cocktail of hormones coming down and cascading in a way really naturally, all the ones that we need like oxytocin, and um, some of the uh, pleasure um, hormones that help us experience uh, less pain, like um, uh, dopamine and norepinephrine, um, norepinephrine and um, beta endorphins, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, all of this. So, so super important, but we don't, you know, we're so, again, like it's so about like, you know, touch in, in a very particular type of way and in a very particular time and setting. And then outside of that, there's like, we don't have a connection to ourselves if someone else isn't touching us in a way that pleases us. Like, how come we're not, you know, yeah. getting getting used to that? I like, love, touch yeah. in, a, in a healthy way. The thing that you do that interests me so much in your work, I mean, many things, like you wrote Own Your Glow and you wrote Mama Glow and you have never separated. It's like you have been on this path. It's not two paths. You have been on a single path and it involves, you know, um, educating people about the politics of childbirth, but also educating people about pleasure. And the magic. And you never, and the mm -hmm. magic. And you've, you never, it's like you are one of the few people I know who your mandate is pleasure-based as well. Yeah. So you, I mean. It should we, always feel good, right? Like yeah. it should feel good. It's not that childbirth always feels good, but you talk to women about being sexual all throughout their pregnancies. Yeah. Um, you talk to women about, treating themselves. Uh, you told me one time when I was really stressed, you said, you need to goddess yourself. You're not doing that <laughs> enough. Can you please tell people what you mean by that? Yeah, like some glow time, right? Just like really, um, you know, when we think about pleasure and, and you know, sensual touch, sexual touch, therapeutic touch, but also connecting with touching ourselves. Like when you just get out the shower, like, you know, people get out of the shower and they just like really quickly throw some lotion on, put their clothes. I want to like really get into my skin. Yeah. And see, you know what I mean? Like feel my way through, take a time. And 
and and connect and thank your body and you know really take the bath not for Instagram but for the freaking bath like sit <laughs> in the tub right like really soak read the book you know like do the Netflix and the popcorn and the chocolate and the sex and then turn it back on whatever it is right like we really relax and I think we're so um we like schedule really tightly this time for ourselves. Like, oh, I'm going to do this thing for myself, but like only for 30 minutes. And then, or, oh, I'm going to do this thing for myself, but it's always for something else. It's like, I'm exercising because I want to look good. Or I'm exercising because I want to feel good. But then I'll do this torturous thing mm-hmm. that on the other side of it, I'll be good, but I don't enjoy it. It's like, mm-hmm. no, like even your movement should be pleasurable. Like everything can feel good. Find the yoga for you. If you can't sit in yoga, if you're thinking about your taxes and other things, (laughs) then that's not your thing, right? Or you could find something else or another teacher, but like maybe it's kickboxing, maybe it's, you know, cycling, maybe it's, you know, um, salsa dancing, maybe it's pole, you know, like find what makes you feel good. And I think that so many of us are disconnected to or don't even feel like we deserve things that make us feel good that we won't do it. So it'll be like, you deserve, like you won't even go to the dance class or you won't go to this thing, or you won't even do the things that you're good at that make that give you pleasure because you feel like you don't deserve it. So we need to, I think regularly experience delight and like not make it be like an occasion. Siri's back. Siri just came back. Siri. Okay. I'm turning the phone off. That is so crazy. Okay, I want to ask you, this is New York, we're recording in New York City right now. This is a very high stress city. Yes, But I think women all across the country and men too, wherever they're listening, right? I think your message about pleasure is so relevant. And like, what would you tell people in a high stress situation? Like what are some of the ways that they might not think about this is an easy way to build pleasure back into my life. I mean, Mm. you once told me that shifting my mindset was a question of doing small things every day. Yeah, I think small things every day, yeah. I mean, but something sweet for yourself every day, something tender for yourself, you know? If you're coupled, yeah, tenderness. I think like if you're coupled, awesome. Like, you know, do some things for you. A lot of times like we get so enmeshed that we start doing the things that bring us pleasure, you know, to make sure that we're also like being a great partner. And I think it's really important to sometimes like, you know, do this thing, this hobby or this thing that like gives you joy that takes you outside of the relationship and allows you to like, you know, connect to something so that when you come back to that, you feel really turned on, you know? Like we have to find things that turn us on, um, that activate like our chakras that don't have anything to do with our partners or being partnered. And I think that, you know, I mean, sex is an incredible pathway, obviously to pleasure, but you don't have to have that to live a pleasureful life and live a life well um, worth living. That's really what Own Your Glow was about for me, the yeah. book that you wrote. I mean, everybody should check it out. You have these suggestions that are just, I, I love to have it by my bedside. Aww. And it is my treat to myself that I get to read one more of your suggestions I for things that. to do. Oh my God, that's so sweet. And the, you know, your suggestion, I keep talking about this, but your suggestion of a bath ritual mm-hmm. was like so mind altering for me because you even so, told me about it. Yeah. I think I was talking Did to I you. Did I tell you about it? I was on the phone with you and you're like, well, I, 
I don't know what this when this was. Maybe it was New Year's or it was Valentine. I don't something. And you were like, "No, I'm doing my bath ritual tonight." I'm like, "Wow, <laughs> I want right? to do a bath ritual." But I'm like, but, "This is the simplest thing. All of us have a bathtub, but somehow we don't use it, right?" Yeah. But it's but I think the one thing too though is like consistency. Like if you do something for yourself, mm. like continue to do it, continue to repeat it, and that becomes a ritual, right? And so what we have a lot of our habits. Right, and then habits are the things that we wish we didn't do as much. But rituals are the things that, like, um, that when we start to do them over and over and over, they imbue um, a sort of presence, a certain energy in our lives. And if we can tap into that, that gives us power. That recharges us, and it gives us this energy that when we come out of that that experience, that we can show up in a different way. Right. So it's like, what can we do, like? every single day for ourselves, not just like, oh, you know, my sister's getting married. I'm going to go for a spa or we're so going to go for a massage. For people to look at me. Yes. Like, why can't we just say like, I'm not going to wait till I feel broke down for massage. I'm going to get touched tonight or whatever it is. Right. Like do these things on a regular basis and they don't have to be expensive. Always people always think like, oh, self-care has to be expensive or it's a luxury or it's for certain people. No, it's this is like a self-preservation activity. This is for us to actually recharge ourselves. This is, and it's also not just doing things. It's not doing things. There's a lot of things that I feel like, you know, I'll say no to and I have boundaries. And and self-care is just as much about boundaries mm -hmm. and creating space for yourself and checking in on a moment-to-moment -moment basis and seeing like, does this feel good? Like, is this good for all that are involved? How do I feel right now? You know, it's checking in with yourself. To do see, I want to go? Right. Do I want to go like, to that event? If it's 20 degrees and it's snowing and it's dark at four o'clock, I'm not going. So, and that's totally okay, right? Like being okay with it's saying have no, to be, right? Because right? I'm not going until it's May. Like I have my snowsuit on until May. Like don't expect to see me. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like we have to be honest That's too. your policy. That's my policy. That is my policy and my public service announcement. Do not ask <laughs> yeah. me to come until May. Unless we're asking you to come somewhere warm. Yeah, you can come to me. It's 80 degrees today. Hey. Look, we crushed it. Okay. We crushed Wednesday. it. Yes. You guys this got out the weather. And I was like, you know what? I got to come. This weather is perfect. <laughs> and I think something that's good to touch on, I actually posted about this on Instagram the other day, was doing things that feel good yes. to you and that make you happy. That's not being selfish yes at all like doing totally. what you want to do that makes you happy is not being selfish it's right. huge you're gonna be happier more fulfilled your relationships are going to be just more fulfilled and exciting and totally. vibrant and you will feel that way right yeah. and why is it that we like who created the narrative around selfishness like is it is it women telling each other that we're selfish is it like us judging each other in that way you know what because yeah because we do go right into that, like, oh, I don't deserve it, or oh, and it's we always have to rationalize why we deserve something. It's like we do so much, you know. And I think that you're right. Like, we have to make sure that we s get into that, you know, that dialogue with ourselves about like it's okay, and this, and I need this. Mm -hmm. This helps sustain me, and you know, so that you can make it a regular thing instead of being like, oh, well, let me figure out all the re reasons why I deserve this and make a flow chart. It's like you should just. 
and then feel guilty after I do it and then remind myself of why I did it over and over again it's like no girl just do it and enjoy it it and enjoy it it's like the chocolate right it's like the chocolate or the chips you're like oh my god I want the chips I want the chips I want and then you don't eat them and then you're thinking about them and then it's the next day and you're still thinking eat the damn chips get it over with enjoy it right and be and move on but otherwise it's like this thing that we we don't feel like we deserve and I think that a big piece of the work too is about expanding our capacity to receive right whether that's Mm -hmm. like you know relationships love whether that's pleasure but also joy from within that we only can create for ourselves it's self-generated and I think that that comes from saying yes to yourself you know like you can say no to a whole bunch of things that are outside but you have to start saying yes to yourself and we don't do that I think so much of our existence is about again turning away from ourselves and saying no and not not actually exploring what it would be like to say yes to ourselves. Ooh, mm-hmm. say yes to yourself. That's say yes. That's a nice hashtag. <laughs> That's good. Um, one time when I was talking to Whitney about her relationship coaching, she was talking about coaching the women mm-hmm. that she works with sometimes to feel entitled Ooh. to sexual pleasure, but just to feel entitled, period. Mm. We usually use the word entitlement in in a critical way, right? Sure. About entitlement, that it's a negative thing. But what you're suggesting and what, what Whitney has talked with me about is that entitlement can be very healthy if you're coming from a mindset where you feel that your best and highest use is only serving other people. Yes. Whether and you're worthy and you deserve that. Yeah, you whether know? you feel entitled to say this monogamy thing isn't working for me or I, I'm going to have a massage to your point or like, mm-hmm. no, I like my coffee exactly like this and I'm giving it back to you if it's not just right. I think <laughs> right? there should be a female entitlement revolution. I love the female yes. entitlement revolution. Wait, can we talk about the fact that every woman that I know is so super keen and good at being able to send some food back? So I don't want to hear nobody say that they can't take the time for themselves or they can't speak up for themselves. Because if you can tell somebody that this was too hot or this was spicy or I didn't ask for this or I said no cheese, if you can do that, you can do it for other areas of your life. But I love this piece. I just want to go back because you talked about the monogamy thing and the coaching thing. I would love to hear how you enter a relationship and how you bring up the subject as well as work it into your life so you can create a lifestyle around um, having an open relationship. Because I know that you have coached so many women through this and you're like embodying this. Um, It's interesting because there's so many people who are parents and then they, you know, on the other side of parenthood, there's some areas where like it would probably be helpful for people to have play or exploration outside so that they could fortify the relationship. But it's like so taboo in our culture. It's such a non-starter in terms of conversation. So I would love to hear kind of like any tips or anything that, you know, you've learned. I think it's becoming a bigger conversation, right? And I think it comes down really to outside of everything to expressing what you want in your relationship, your desires, your thoughts. And that can be in a monogamous relationship or not in a monogamous, an open, you know, uh, polyamorous relationship. And so, but that's where it comes down to is, okay, if I'm feeling like this is too tight of a shirt that I'm wearing and I'm kind of being squeezed, mm-hmm. how can we get out of that? And how can I express that to my partner? And first and foremost, it's just becoming curious about it and being open to the conversation. 
And I always say, okay, listen to podcasts, read books like Untrue, um, Sex at Dawn, The Ethical Slut, and just dive into the topic and see if you can have that conversation with your partner without the pressure of doing anything at first. Mm -hmm. Like, let's have this conversation on an intellectual level just to talk about it. And blame. I always say blame it on somebody else. I always say to women and men, like, blame it on me. Say that you read my book or you read Sex at Dawn or you heard this podcast. I overheard the train. And say, hey, I overheard. This woman next to me. Go go on. You wouldn't believe what she was But it is, it's the the conversation of, okay, I want to express to my partner what I truly want. Um, and how hard, for me, it's if you can't have just a conversation with your life partner, right? then what's really going on here, you know? Right. And you want to have it before things get really um, ossified and before you're really hardening into this isn't working for me and it Mm. becomes a daily grind, right? Mm -hmm. Like so many women that I talk to, they get, they don't have the information that Whitney is helping people have the information that like monogamy tends to be harder for women in the aggregate than for men. Women tend to get bored faster of one single partner. Their desire tends to drop off faster. It's Mm -hmm. not that they are not liking sex anymore. It's that it's harder for them to do monogamy. And we have all kinds of research about it now, but that doesn't do women any good if we don't give them the information and then help them feel entitled to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I talk to so many women who say, there's nothing I can do. And they're just like, they're bored after a few years. Dude, that's like what breaks my heart. There's nothing that you can do. They're but They're giving they're, service sex and they just think right. this is it. And it's normal. This is so normal. I'm in this marriage now and we've been together for so long and I just have to have sex with them because this of XYZ. This is just the way it is. Right. And it's like, no, that's not the way it is actually. But there that's what you hear, right? You get married and right. you stop having sex. It doesn't have to be that way. And right. regardless if you are exploring open or you play together or you just talk about what feels good, you're in touch with your own body. Or you just decide just talking about having adventures is enough for some people. Oh, yeah, that can absolutely be a pressure Or some people want to go valve. watch other people. Mm-hmm. But there's all, Tammy Nelson talks about this and so does Whitney, like the monogamy continuum, mm-hmm. right? There's so many different things that you can do and it doesn't have to be monogamous or open. There's right. an infinite way of building a relationship that works specifically for you. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it works for your neighbor or your mom or whoever else. Like right. let's create a relationship based solely that works, customized, for you. Right. Kind of like what you were saying with the doula, what works for you? What works for you? You know, how can we make this the most comfortable and magical experience? Yeah. You know, what's so interesting. Um, Before I came to see y'all, I was um, on a plane, not just right now, but I was on a plane yesterday and you know how like they'll have the movies and stuff. And so um, apparently I've been on so many flights that I've watched most of them. So I (laughs) So I had to like watch like the classic movies. And so I'm scrolling, 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 and I find Sex in the City. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I could sleep through it and it'll be fine, yeah. right? So I turned on Sex in the City part two. And as I'm watching it, and this is one of those movies and one of those shows that I thought was supposed to be timeless. But as I'm watching it, I was like, wow, I was so keenly aware of the messaging around um First of all, around like uh, sexuality and sexual tropes. And then there was like a whole piece on because there was like the um, 
their friend couple, like their two best friends that were gay got married to each other, mm -hmm. I think in this right. movie. And so then they they were so hyper aware about going to this gay wedding and they kept saying that over and over. And I was like, wow, like I don't remember this last time or whenever I watched it. But then I remember um, one said like, oh, I gave him this big fabulous wedding and my treat is that I get to cheat. And so this was like a through line throughout and they were talking about it and it came up a bunch throughout the movie and there was also a bunch of messaging, obviously, around monogamy. And then Carrie has um, has sex. Sorry. No, she did not. She had a kiss with like her <laughs> old boyfriend um, in, you know, um, the souk or whatever in um, in Abu Dhabi. And it became like this huge thing where she's like, I have to tell him. And I was like, wow, like this is what we were being fed every week. Like these ideas and this, it's like this crisis of like, what is it to be a good woman? And I'm with this man. And I was like, I feel like he was always like out cheating on her and doing whatever. And she's right, married yeah. to the guy, but whatever. And so it was just like this, this, this was what we were really fixated on as a culture. And so I think it's just interesting that watching this however long later, maybe, I don't know, that movie came out maybe a, 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe. It's like looking at that now, I feel like we've grown so much as a culture, but not around certain conversations. We're still not having a real conversation about like what's not working in monogamy. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to like, you know, have, be on your away game? Like I always feel like when somebody's in another country, I'm just like, I don't know what they're doing. I'm just gonna like, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> you know, away yeah. Game. I think it's like, yeah. so you're away game. It's like, yeah. you know, when you're at home and you're playing in your yeah. stadium, you're one way. And then when you go to another place, you do your thing. So I always assume like, oh, they're gonna probably meet somebody when they go to another country. Cause they're just in there Some, a different energy. I love hearing all the different rules couples have. Yeah. I mean, I don't this, have that rule, but I assume it. sometimes but, like, that's what's happening. I and I just, I want to feel like if I met somebody, I would want to feel like, you know, if, you know, I don't do that, but like currently, but I feel like there's so much pressure. Like if you did have a nice conversation with someone like you, there's so much pressure to be like, oh, but that's not done. And you're in a thing. Right. And, and that's what happened in the movie. And I was like, wow, we're really like this with people. This movie we're that very was supposed judgmental. to, yeah, the, the movie that is supposed to be kind of progressive and, and about edgy women and pushing being boundaries. open. Yes. And it was so close-minded in that way. And so I just wonder like, how do you find yourself pushing up against this in culture and how, like with a younger generation of people who are so more fluid in terms of what they consider like the norm, mm -hmm. I wonder like how you ride this wave of like an open-minded culture and like indoctrinate or even introduce them to like concepts that they could work with even broaching a conversation. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like not finding that possible in the context of this movie. I was like, there's no way that somebody could bring, even it Samantha could bring in. It was shutting down a conversation, It was right? a shutting down right. that I saw. I mean, isn't it amazing to think how many people get married, how many heterosexuals get married without any conversation about whether they'll be monogamous. And you and what that means, yeah, you, too, Yeah, and right? you live in a very special niche, right? You're in Austin, and mm -hmm. it's progressive, and you created a community of people who feel entitled to have these conversations, which I love. But so many people just think that, well, if we're happy, if we want to be happy, and if we're mentally we healthy, monogamy is just, and it's the default. And I think that creates so much unhappiness. And I'm sorry, but back to this entitlement piece, 
I feel that women just don't feel entitled to have a conversation mm. about monogamy. I mean, I've told Whitney this, that when I was in my 20s, I was a complete disaster at monogamy. It was a very different <laughs> landscape than it is now, right? Yeah. It was a very different landscape then. But gay men who were my friends educated me and said, wait a second, like if you don't want to be a monogamous, you can tell your boyfriend that. And I was like, Oh, you can? Wait, what? Really? So like, I feel all entitled to have the conversation, mm -hmm. entitled in a healthy way. And I try to have the conversation, but I'm not part of gay culture right. at that point, right? My, I mean, I was, because I was with all my gay male friends, but I was, my sexual life was happening within heterosexual culture. And it was too early. It was too early mm. for me to try to like import consensual non-monogamy into the context of heterosexuality. My boyfriends were so hurt and so offended. And I think that kind of thing when it happens to women, when they're not living in places where open relationships are okay or there's a conversation about polyamory, they, you get shut down so fast. And then there's so much messaging mm -hmm. that monogamy is the healthy baseline normal thing that people do. Right. That it takes a tremendous sense of entitlement to feel like that you can talk about it because the consequences could be so dire. Right. And it's like And yet it's shifting. I think it, it is, is shifting. I really do think it's becoming a bigger conversation. Plus with modern relationships today, I feel like monogamy cannot be assumed anymore. Like mm. let's talk about this. We're in a partnership with each other. Okay, if we want to be monogamous, what does that look like for us? Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? Right. Does monogamy mean like we you know, you know Tammy's work. So mm -hmm. Tammy Nelson has this thing called the the monogamy continuum, and she says, for some people, monogamy is like you can't even look at porn because that feels like a betrayal, right? Wow. And then other people are like over here and on this far end of the monogamy spectrum or continuum, and what they say is, oh, it's totally fine to be with other people um, and have sex with them, but like our relationship takes priority mm. and like between those two points there's this whole there's spectrum, spectrum of commitment mm -hmm. and and you know i think that people i think that we're opening there's a moment now there is this oh i like to say like let's face it in polls and stuff like 95 percent of americans say that they believe that infidelity is wrong okay Meanwhile, but Google searches it, for like polyamory right. and open relationship and consensual non-monogamy have increased like exponentially and here's the over other thing. a 10 What does infidelity period. actually mean? What, does it what mean? is the definition of infidelity? So I like to say we're married to monogamy, you know? but we're curious about our options in this culture. I mean, That's people true. are really curious, right? People wanna, yeah, people I think are because they're trying to also find loopholes because they don't want to have the conversation. So it's like, where do I fit along this where I could still be like, I'm still here. I'm yeah. doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I also can like play in the sandbox over here. I think it's interesting because there's like this church thing, right? Where it's like, you know, like, oh, you're supposed to be like, you know, I mean, there's this puritanical and also religious thing that is veiled over us. Mm. But then I think there's also, um, we talk about it like culturally too. There's a lot of different ways that I think people of different backgrounds look at it because I know like in certain homes, like, I mean, not where I grew up, but I had tons of friends where like their dads were always out and it was yeah. assumed, you know, yeah. and, and it was also covered up. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that in a lot of the, you know, 
amongst the like old, the women that I was sort of raised around and mm-hmm. whatever. But I did see that, you know, I know from my mom who has a really he- healthy sexual relationship with herself that she was always very clear about like, you know, her pleasure and she always took time for herself and always went out and, you know, we were raised well and had, you know, good structure in our lives, but she was very clear about like her time with her boyfriend or whatever it is. And, um, and she's someone who to this day has a very healthy sexual relationship um, with herself and then in how she engages in the world. But I do think that um, she's somebody who's who has a different mindset about monogamy and she's in her 60s, you know? But I think that in her time too, it was not probably um, something that you could discuss, but you could discuss in a subculture. Yeah. Right. But not in, you know, like not amongst your girlfriends. And I think that there's still this 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 line where you're judged around morality as a woman. If you do anything, if you could flirt with someone, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, like, there's right? so much scrutiny. There's a lot of scrutiny. And I think it yeah. comes from women. And I oh, think yeah. a lot of it is like women doing the work of patriarchy well, will like, keep it alive. Enforcing, right. Enforcing enforcing the rules, enforcing the, rules. Yeah. Right. So. So I guess a question that I have around this is really to like, how do we deconstruct that? Like on a regular basis, like how do we, you know, when, cause people, no one really steps in and says, I mean, I think there's like slut shaming. There's people who jump in and say, okay, like, you know, you shouldn't attack and here's why you shouldn't say this. But like, does anybody step in when there's this conversation and say, you know, everyone's entitled to, you know, is there language yet? Like culturally, is there a dialogue where, because I feel like in every other conversation, when it comes to gender, we have language and, mm-hmm. and, and concepts and framework to talk about like that spectrum. But what's our language outside of science, right? Just like in real life, when we're dealing with people, what's our, like, what's the con? What's the continuum in terms of our lexicon and how we refer mm-hmm. to all that's happening on this spectrum so that we can engage in a conversation because I don't think that we have even you don't, you're saying, language. You're saying we can't have a conversation about it if we don't have a vocabulary. Right. I don't think we have a vocabulary yet. No. Mm-hmm. We we learned vocabulary words, right? I so mean, what are some of them? It. Like what can we what can like we understand CNM. Okay, what's CNM? Consensual non-monogamy. Okay. Compersion. Tell her what compersion is. Which is the opposite basically the opposite of jealousy. So I get pleasure from your pleasure. Like just, I'm so happy that you get to do that. So I'm actually, I actually feel pleasure from that. Like that doesn't have to be sexual either. You know, everyone's like, oh, because you want to watch so-and-so have sex, you get, you get off to that. It doesn't have to be that. It's maybe it's you going to have coffee with a really attractive guy. And I'm like, you go girl. Like how I would be with a girlfriend of mine. Yeah. You know? And And it is called compersion. But it is also used to describe that some people um, get to a point in a relationship where their sexual partner their person is having sex with somebody else, not that they're there watching, but it, that that person is getting excited excites them. So conversion right. is this. Mm. It's this overarching yeah. kind of like, yeah, I get pleasure from your pleasure. Oh, mm. and limerence. Limerence. Right? Limerence yep. is a new vocabulary. What's word limerence? That I That's like new relationship energy. Some people call it NRE. You know, when you meet somebody and you're just like obsessed. Oh, yeah. I have hormones to describe this. Oxytocin and yeah. uh, PEA, which is like a OCD hormone. Right. Um, yeah, there's there's science for that, too. Yeah, That's amazing. They, and what are some other Limerence. fun vocab? Well, you know, 
polyamory is just a, a term that's like really entered mm-hmm. kind of entering into more of the mainstream right yep and i think like there's i think it's great that we're we're having more language surrounding this so it does become like i said more of a conversation and but for me when i'm working for or when i'm working with my clients or for myself mm-hmm. putting myself out there fully i i openly really talk about my unconventional relationship mm-hmm. and it's about this is my truth and this is my authentic self and i want to bring my authentic self into the world to inspire other people to live their authentic self in right. whatever that means for them mm-hmm. right yeah that's really interesting because i think that again there's so many limitations to how people perceive um their relationships can be right like mm-hmm. what they think is possible and i find that is the same in the work that we do too sometimes it's like oh you know i was thinking i'd like to do this but now i know that i could i could possibly do a birth center i could do this like it's right. really important to to have options you're kind of like um like a re- relationship and sex doula mm. in a way, right? And helping people to figure out how they're going to cross expand, that river and like expand their definition, and, expand, yeah. reach their edges, see what is, see what's over that edge. And if you right. don't like it, you don't have to do yeah, it. What's Say like, yeah. I'll reinvent yeah. myself here, or I'm not interested in doing that. I tried it on, it didn't work out, yeah. and that's totally okay. Yeah, yeah, changing it over time, right? Instead of just monogamy, this is going to work forever. This is going to work for everybody. Right. Maybe the menu contains other things. Well, and it's like, okay, maybe you do for try open and then you want to go back to monogamy. Great. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what's interesting about it too is that we haven't really thought about like what's changed for people, but specifically women in the past like 100 years right? Like it did make sense, I guess, to be in a place where there's structure and there was a man and he could bring home, you know, money and whatever. It's like now we're doing our, you know, we're bringing in normal money. Yeah. You know, like it's not about, I mean, property rights, I know is like the foundation of like US structure in terms of when we look at marriage, we look at everything. It's like goes back to property rights, right? But then we think about like, well, for women, it's like, the government doesn't support us or, or do anything. Like we don't get anything. If we have kids, we don't get anything. If we, whatever, right. we don't get any support. So for us, it's like, we have advanced so much in terms of the jobs, you know, the job market and education. We're far yeah. more educated than men. So when we think about like our upward mobility has gone through the roof. And it's like, if you think about why do you need to be even with one person if they're not, provide if you can provide for yourself and if you and if you're in the situation whereby because if we think about back in the day it was like okay I needed to be in a in a social construct but also in one a relationship whereby I had resources mm-hmm. and right. access to resources it's always about that women we don't need yeah. the resources in the same way anymore if right? women have economic autonomy and political autonomy wherever you see that you're going to see that women have sexual autonomy. Mm-hmm. You can you can be rich because you can have money or you can be rich in like kin support and friendship support, but if women have any kind of wealth and if you're in a culture where women have a political voice, you will always see that they are making their own decisions for themselves sexually. So I always say, okay, so let's look at that backwards. What does that tell us about how women are here because women here sometimes die for not being monogamous, right? They can, domestic violence, gun violence. Yep. What does it tell us about our country that, you know, 
it can be so dangerous for a woman um, to refuse monogamy. Um, yeah. you know? And just to get in, like, it's like, again, getting in touch with yourself and what you really want and figuring that out. And that's why I think your work is so important and something that all of us should just dive so much more into. Um, so thank Before you. Before you're ready to thank have your babies. You. Yeah. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. And, thank you. Uh, this has been such an awesome conversation. It has. Thank you for never leaving pleasure out of the equation <sighs> and for showing us that pleasure is really political. Yes. You and you're entitled to your pleasure. And Go you're get entitled. it. Entitled. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for the new vocabulary words Ooh. I have. Limerence. <laughs> get out and use compersion. those. Compersion. Compersion. <laughs> a little compersion. Consensual. Yeah. Yes, CNM is it? CNM because mm. I takes learned a long so time. many new words. Well, well we learned so much today. Too. Yeah, we learned so much today too. Thanks. So, for being with tell us. people if you have events coming up or how they can follow you, find you. Yes. So, if you're interested in doula work and possibly, you know, going that route and helping women, especially in our country, since we're in a maternal health crisis here. Um, you can go to mamaglow.com. We have trainings pretty much every month. Um, and you can sign up to join us there. If you're looking for a doula, you can also go there. And um, I think I'm active, kind of textually active on Instagram. You are. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on Instagram on uh, Glow Maven. It's G-L-O-W-M-A-V-E-N. And um, our... Instagram for Mama Glow is up to, um, which you can find great information. It's just Mama Glow, M-A-M-A-G-L-O-W. Yeah. Great. Search her out. You won't be sorry. Aww, I know. When I'm ready to have kids, I'm so excited to yes. dive fully Yay. into this some more. God, here's your doula. She's sitting right I here. I was actually I'm already thinking this. I'm like, all right. You're welcome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> here she is. Uh, thank Amazing. you so thank much. Thank you, Latham. Thank you. <laughs> If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes because this is what will support the podcast and it will spread the message for us. And if you leave your Instagram handle with your review, we'll pick one lucky reviewer to win a free copy of my book, Untrue, about female lust. And one other lucky reviewer will win a free coaching session with relationship coach Whitney Miller. Yes. Thanks, guys.